Awesome. Now we're going to get into the message. <clears throat> and Pastor Mike was trying to preach my message, um, and so I kind of considered letting him just do it because he was doing such a great job. But I had all my notes planned, so I went ahead and did it. Okay, guys, you guys need some more coffee. And Nancy, where are you? We need more coffee. Um, <laughs> encouraging people to bring it. No. But anyway, last week, Matt talked about taking your place. And, and that was, that's such a huge thing because every person has a place. We talk about that all the time. But the part that really stood out to me was that my place is a part of a bigger vision. That, that I have a small part in a big vision. Did that, did that stand out to you guys? Were you here? Were you awake, you know, in, during last week? But anyway, he asked us this question. He said, do you know your place? And if you do, will you take it? And he gave us that picture of the stone wall. Did you see that? Can we see that? There it is. Micah, you are on it. This is awesome. And so in this stone wall, you see that, that every stone in here is a little unique. And that's like us. We all are a little unique. Some of us carry our, our um, hold on, think through how to say that accurately. Um, some of us are, can carry more weight because we're a little, you know, larger in space of personality. Some of us are very precisioned. And so we're fitting into some of those smaller spaces. But I like to dream bigger. And so when I was thinking about this, I started thinking about the Great Wall of China. You know, you know, you guys know what the Great Wall of China is? You know that long wall? I, I should have looked up how long it is. But it took over 300 years to build the Great Wall of China. It's pretty remarkable. And I started to think, what if some of those stones were like, yeah, my place isn't significant. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to take my place. I realize stones don't talk. This is a, a metaphor, guys. Come on, let's just follow with me. Um, but, but what if some of those stones didn't take their place? What if a part of that wall didn't get built? Then it would no longer be the Great Wall of China that hundreds of years later we still, people come to visit. I never visited, but some of you maybe visited that. It would just be a wall. And it kind of got me thinking, like, <clears throat> what if I don't take my place? Or, or what if this body says, hey, you know what, we're not gonna, we're not gonna take our place. We're just, we're just kind of a smaller church, or I'm just an insignificant part, then, then I'm not gonna step into that. Then what? Then what was meant to be the Great Wall of China is just a wall. It's just a wall. Some of us, when we're hearing this, that you have a place and that it's significant, it, that truth is kind of warring against lies that the enemy has sown in you. Lies of worthlessness. Lies that are attacking or have attacked your identity. And there's a part of you that wants to believe that. You want to believe that there's something in you, that God created you for something significant, but yet you're remembering all these lies. And I just want to stand here today to tell you that's what that is. Those are lies. Because God doesn't make insignificant things. God said man is the crown of creation. That is you. You are the crown of creation. You are his masterpiece. There is something significant he created you for. You're the work of art that he wants to put on display. But I know even hearing that, you're like, I see that in so many other people. But I don't know if that's true about me. And so we're going to bow our heads one more time and we're going to pray against those lies. We're not going to move forward in this message and let those things have a place in this house. So, dear Jesus, we come in your name, the name that is above every lie, every attack of our identity, every lie of worthlessness, Lord God. We come and we say that those names have to submit to the name of Jesus. They have to be broken. Those, those things cannot speak to us in this house. I bind every single one of them, and I pray that truth 
would shatter lies. In Jesus' name, I pray that the name of Jesus, the truth of Jesus, will shatter through those, will begin to build a foundation that taking our place will build off of. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So now we can get started. Sorry, if I do too much shouting, I start to lose my voice, so I apologize. But um, I want to talk to you today about that power of two to three. It's something that we've been talking about a lot um, ever since the end of last year, and it's really been resonating with us and starting to permeate a lot of what we do. We talk a lot here about raising up game changers. That's the individual. That's your plan, and that's your purpose. And we talk a lot, especially me, because I love this, about rising, raising up an army. And every time I talk about an army, and then I see Micah back there, or any other of you military people, and I know I'm getting ready to do an analogy, I, I start to realize that I don't know a whole lot of what I'm talking about, but just flow with me. All of those that you know that I'm a little off in it, just, guys, okay? Nod your head. Say you're with me. Okay, we talk a lot about raising up an army, and that's all of us. That's coming together. There is significant power in an army. But what would happen if this entire church got up and we descended on the school? Jamie's a teacher. What would happen? Get out. Get out, you crazy people. What are you doing? But there's something significant about two or three. About two or three, a small group a little militia type, a sneak attack, people that are going in and they're beginning to like cut the Achilles heel off of the enemy in a place. They're not going to take them down, but they're going to start to do a little bit of damage so when the army comes in, they're better equipped to be able to handle it. Are you guys following me? Sometimes we need to go in as the power of two or three, but, but sometimes we look at that and we think that it's insignificant. Like, oh, maybe there's only a couple of us. What can we really do? How many of you felt that way in whatever, in something? There's only one. It's only me. There's only a couple of us. What can I really do? Well, there's a lot that you can do. Mark, in Mark 6, it says that Jesus sent out the disciples two by two. At this point, he sent out 70 people. Why didn't he send 70? You know, 70 could do a lot more work than two, right? Wrong. Because if 70 people descended on a town of like a couple hundred people, I think they'd be noticed. It would be like, what is going on here? Hold on. Maybe that's an army coming to attack us. Let's put up our walls of defense. But when two people came in and they looked like travelers, and they just came and they just stayed in someone's home, and they began to preach the gospel. They began to talk about Jesus in the home of the family that they were staying in and the friends that came over to this home. All of a sudden, that family's life started to get changed. God started to do something in those fam- in that family and in the friends that began to permeate the rest of the town even after those two left. Jesus knew what he was doing, and he knew that in Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 12, it says two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. The Bible also says that one can put a thousand to flight to ten thousand. This isn't one plus one. It's like one times one. What we can do is one is multiplied when we come together as two, And just think of what three could do. If we keep reading on, it says, if either one of them fall down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. You better know me if you're going to lie down with me, just so you know. Just saying. Um, But how can one keep warm alone? Oh, I better be dying. If I'm dying, I will accept it. Um, But it said, though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a three-cord strand is not quickly broken. The Bible's putting a lot of emphasis on two coming together. 
God was trying to help us see something here, that there is something powerful when two people come together. There's actually a lot you can do. Don't devalue two of you and what impact you can have when you come together. We need groups of two or three praying for this church. We don't have to have an in-house prayer meeting, organized, promoted. We just need two of you to say, I love this church. This is my church, and I want to pray for my church. We need groups of two or three praying for this city. This city needs groups of two or three. You don't have to wait for a city meeting. You don't have to wait for someone to lead you. You, God put it on your heart. You, grab your buddy that you've been talking about it and pray for this city. It is going to make a difference. We need two or three in our schools. We desperately need two or three in our schools. Two or three teachers, two or three students gathering together, praying over those schools and over the hearts of the people that are in that place. We need small groups of men and women in business and in government seeking the wisdom of God and changing the trajectory that we seem to be on. It reminds me of the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer. You guys know that story? Awesome. See, these are the opportunities when I love when you don't respond because then I'm like, oh, they want me to tell them the story. So I will do that. Um, But in 1 Samuel Chapter 14, it's talking about Jonathan and his armor bearer. And what was happening is the army of the Israelites were uh, up against the army of the Philistines. It kind of happened all the time. They were, they were like this never-ending foe for a really long period of time. Uh, the Philistines, you know the story of like David and Goliath? Goliath was a Philistine. Okay, so here we are, and they're getting ready to go into battle. But the crazy thing is, is the Philistines had stopped all blacksmith work in the town. So no one had a sword or anything like that in the army. Well, that's a little terrifying, isn't it? Like you're getting ready to go fight this Philistine army. There were giants there, and we don't even have a sword except for Saul and Jonathan. And so Jonathan, being a man of faith, this is what he said in verse 6. It said that Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. Now hear this. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. I'm going to say that again. For nothing restrains the Lord for saving by many or by few. God's not limited to your number. God doesn't need the Israelite army to do damage. He just needs two or three people that believe in his name that say, I will go. God send me. I believe in you. I believe that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so Jonathan said, let's just go see. He didn't have a plan. God didn't come speak to him. It was just on his heart. And he said, I know that we are the children of God, and I know they are defying the Lord God, and I know that's not okay. So I'm going to grab the guy next to me, and I'm going to go over, and we're going to just see what God will do. And so they went, and it said that there were, down in the valley, that there were sharp rocks up on this side and sharp rocks up on that side. And, and so it's really interesting to me. I like to think of these things. So Jonathan said, this is what we're going to do, friend. We are going to yell up to them, and we're going to say, if, you know, hey, or whatever. If they call us up, then we're going to say God's on our side. But if they don't call us up, then, then we're going to assume God's not on our side and, and run for our lives, probably. But what I don't understand is if there's sharp rocks on this side, why didn't Jonathan say, hey, God, if you want us to attack them, send them down. 
he, did, he didn't do that. But see, this is the kind of faith that Jonathan had. Because what they wound up doing is they called him up. And so Jonathan in his armor bearer scaled this sharp rock cliff. And they got to the top and they wind up slaughtering 20 Philistines. 20 Philistines. Now, if I climbed any cliff of just about any size, I'm going to be laid out on the ground. Like, I am not slaughtering anyone. But they killed 20 people, which is evidence that God was on their side. But this is what the Bible says after they did that. In Samuel 14, 15, it says, And there was trembling in the camp, the Philistine camp, in the field and among all the people. The garrison and the raiders also trembled. The earth quaked so that it was a very great trembling. Now, it had to be God if two men who exhausted themselves by scaling a rock cliff came and were able to kill 20 men, but that army was so much larger than 20 men. But in that act, it caused fear and trembling in the enemy camp. When two or three move forward in the name of God, it will cause fear and trembling in the enemy camp. Did you guys hear that? But something else happened. At the same time, Saul and the Israelite army, they were hearing all of this commotion and faith rose up in them and they started pursuing the Philistines. But then it also said that those Israelites who were in the enemy camp, that they started to take courage and they left the enemy camp and they joined the Israelites. Those who were once captive were set free. And they joined the Israelite army, not just as little wimpy, we're, we're captive. They started pursuing their attackers. They started going after their attackers. And the Bible also says that those that were hiding in the hills, hiding in the mountains out of fear, they came rushing down and joined the army. When two or three will be bold enough to say, I'm going to move forward in the things that God is speaking to me, then you're going to strike fear in the enemy. And then you are going to rescue captives from the enemy camp. And you are going to encourage those who were once hiding. That's something to be excited about. More excited than that. That is something to be really excited about. So I want to ask you, what is God calling you into? Have you pushed it off as not significant? Have you already disqualified yourself from the things that he's put on your heart? I challenge you to pray about it again. Think about it again. Look around and see who's with you. Look around who's been passionate about that with you. Look around and say, who have you been talking to? That you've been talking about the schools and just how something needs to change. Grab that person or those group of people. Start praying and just say, hey, God, if we're going to go and we're going to stand in front of the school and we're going to say, if you speak, then the doors will open or the opportunity will open. And we're going to say yes to whatever opportunity you present in front of us. And we're going to be bold. And we're going to follow where you lead. Will you do that? If you're a child of God, that Holy Spirit, like I talked about earlier, the God that is in you is the same God. The same God that struck fear in the Philistine camp. The same God that gave Jonathan and the armor bearer strength to climb that mountain and then slay 20 soldiers. The same God who parted the Red Sea and all the things that we read about. He's the same God that wants to work on behalf of you? Will you let him? What if taking your place is the thing that God wants to use to call the, the people that you've been praying for out of the enemy camp? Yeah, that got personal. 
the people you've been praying for, your kids in the school, your wayward brother, sister, mother, father, whatever. What is the thing that God, he's like, I have the provision. I want to answer that prayer. And the answer is you following what I put on your heart. You being bold, being the example, breaking the chains so that I can pull them out of that enemy's hand. Will you do it? Will you do it? So before we get started today, because we haven't, let's pray. Dear Father God, I just thank you so much. Lord, I thank you so much for who you created us to be. Lord God, we, we so miss so much of who you created us to be. We allow the lies of the enemy to devalue us, to cause us to shrink back. Lord God, to cause us to, to disqualify ourselves from the things that you're calling us into. Lord, I just pray that there would be a boldness that would rise in this house today. Lord God, that you would give us eyes to see through you, the way you see, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. And so today I want to talk to you about two things. The first one is exchange. Exchange. This is the way that the power of two to three works. There's probably been the most impact in my life. In exchange is our relationship with others. It's doing life together with men and women in the body of Christ. People who are going after God, they can sharpen you. Proverbs 27, 17 says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens his friend. Okay, that sounds great, right? Like how many of you have used that scripture? And you're like, that's so cool. I want to I be sharpened. Have you ever thought about the sharpening process? The sharpening process is not nice and it's not comfortable. The sharpening process is friction. It causes heat. It rubs you and it rubs things off of you. Who, who wants to sign up for that now? Right. But that's what the Bible says that we need. We need the type of friends that are close enough to us that are going to say things like, you have a booger in your nose and that's gross. Go get it out. Yeah, did you guys just do that? Oh, that's so awesome. No, I saw that. You think? But you want the kind of friend that's going to say, there is something ugly in your personality. I saw that pride. I saw that sin. And I love you enough to say, that is gross. Go get it out. Yeah, listen, if you see a booger in my nose, you better tell me. Like, I don't want to be walking around with a booger. It's embarrassing enough that you saw it. Please don't let everybody else see it, right? Like, you guys are laughing at me, but you're saying the same thing. Because I would rather my best friend tell me I have a booger in my nose. I'm like, okay. Then to come out here and get down, and then I go to the bathroom, and I'm like, everybody saw. Do I? Do I have a booger in my nose? No, anyway, I'm just joking. But we have to come. We talk a lot about getting planted in the house of God. Planted. We don't want to be potted. And I know you guys have probably heard this analogy, but since you won't raise your hand and tell me these things, so I'm going to tell you again. You know, Matt talks a lot about, you know, many people come in and they're in their own pot. And they come into church and they hear the message and they hear worship and praise Jesus. And then they leave with their pot and they go throughout their week. Oh, that's right. Pots don't walk. I'm sorry. That's what you guys do. No, I'm just joking. Okay. But, but the Bible says, and it says in Psalms 92, 12 through 14, that the righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar of Lebanon, planted in the house of the Lord. They will flourish in the courts of our God. They will still bear fruit in old age, and they will stay fresh and green. 
How many of you want to flourish? You don't flourish in a pot. Think about a pot. Now, I'm not a gardener, and I know Lisa Dean is in here, so please don't quiz me later. But in a pot, you can only grow as big as the pot allows. And so you're going to have a period of growing, right? And it's going to look all great. You know, this is my pot. Like, I have a small pot, and I pour in the water, and the plant starts to grow, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is so good. Maybe, maybe I am doing good. And then what happens is all the other things that are supposed to happen that I don't know, and that plant eventually begins to get stunted in its growth because it's limited to how far it can grow. Those roots can only go so far, and then the plant eventually cannot grow any longer. Now, maybe some of you are like, that's okay. I'm okay with medium growth. But see, what happens is if you stay in that pot long enough, eventually the roots get root-bound. And then what happens is you begin to wilt and die. You can't, you don't stay the same forever. Your choice is, am I going to grow or am I going to die? God will give us a little bit of time to come in in our pot. He loves us. He works with us. He leads us step by step, not jump off a cliff. Usually, every once in a while he does do that. But usually, step by step. So he'll allow you to come in in your little pot. And he'll allow you to get the nourishment that falls onto your thing. Because that's the other thing. In a pot, you only get the nourishment that falls into the pot. So if you're a plant in my house, not much. Not much. So you come in and you hear the message and you hear worship and you experience God. And let me just tell you, they say that you, when you hear something, you retain about 5%. If you write it down, it's something like 7 So that means you come in in your pot and you hear your 5%. You miss 95% of all the goodness that was happening in here. And you leave and you get no more nourishment until you come back, which statistically is no longer every week. It's about every three to four to six weeks depending on who you are. And so you are trying to survive off that 5% all that time till you come back. But if you'll boldly come out of that pot and you'll let your roots start to touch other roots, then my 5% comes and touches Kelly and we talk and I get a little bit of her 5%. And then my roots come over here and they touch Matthew and I get some of his 5%. And then they go back there and they start touching some of you. And then I start to get nourishment that better sustains me. Now, I'm not going to touch every root that is in here. Some of your roots, I don't know that I want to touch. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Some of your roots, what do you touch? No, I'm just joking. Um, But they start to touch other roots. And then my plant begins to flourish. And I begin to grow. And I begin to, like this said, flourish in the house of the Lord. That's not just a, a nice little plant. That's a, wow, look at that plant kind of word. And it says that you will grow like a cedar of Lebanon. I'm sure if I asked you, do you guys want to be growing? Or do you want to be a stagnant person where you are? Like, do you want to stay where you are and never grow in anything? Please don't raise your hand. We want to be growing. Growing is always exciting. I have never heard anybody say, oh my gosh, I'm growing spiritually and it's so boring. Or I'm growing in my knowledge of my job and it's just like awful. Like anytime you're talking about growth, there's an excitement. So God's saying, I want you to be growing, and we can never stop growing. I don't care if you're 95, you can still keep growing because there's more to God and more to the knowledge of him and more to his plans and purposes than we can ever sound the depths of. So let's always be growing. But this, I think, might be my favorite part. It says, and they will still bear fruit in old age. 
when we're planted in the house of the Lord, we're going to bear fruit our whole life. We're not going to become like that in a pot that eventually starts to wither and die. That our prime, we hit max, and then we start to lose our ability to impact and to make a difference. No, we are going to grow and to flourish and to make more of an impact and more of a difference in the lives of people. Listen, the people that impact me most at my very young age are those that have went before me, those that have already done what I am in the midst of doing, those who can give me wisdom, but not just worldly wisdom, that they can say, I have been there, I have experienced it, and maybe I can't give you all of the step-by-step things you need to do, but I know that God is going to get you through because he got me through. You can't do that if you're not planted in the house of God. You can't do that if you've been out on your own being beaten up or whatever. We need men and women who can speak to the younger generation, me included, that can say, I've been there and I've seen God move and I know he'll move for you. We need friends speaking into our life, friends that are praying for us. I heard a story of two friends. One had a dream and they were talking to their friend and they were sharing this dream and, and the other one had an interpretation of that dream. She's like, I don't know. Like, this is what I think maybe that dream means. And a few days later, that friend had a revelation that she started to operate in what that dream revealed. And she remembered the interpretation of her friend. And because she knew that God spoke to her, it set her free. It set her free. What would have happened if those two people would not have been planted in the house of God? And they wouldn't have had that conversation. That girl could have had the dream. She could have been like, I don't know what that means. I'm just going to keep on going. And she could have stayed bound in that thing that God was trying to set her free of. I think that was what was the most impactful to me is that power of two to three, coming and doing life together, that God will use you in your friend's life. In fact, God most often uses you in your friend's life. How do you most learn humility? Is it out there on my own when everything's going great or whatever? No, I most learn humility when someone, usually close to me, either gets something I want or offends me or hurts me, and I have to choose humility. Would you agree? If not, you may need to learn some humility. But I don't learn humility on my own. I learn humility through people. Jesus said that we are to walk in humility So what he's saying is you need to walk close enough to people to where they can hurt you and then you can walk in humility and stay close in that relationship. Where do you most experience the love of God outside of prayer and worship? It's through people. There was a time when about six years ago or so where Pastor Matt's uncle died and it was a tragic death and and the whole family was rocked. And there was some friends of ours, he had just killed the deer, was hanging in our barn, and needed to be harvested. And these friends just heard. They live an hour and 20 minutes or so away from us. They drove to our house. They harvested the deer, cleaned our house, huge for me. Um, And then we came home, and it was all taken care of. Had we not been walking closely enough with them, they wouldn't even have known. They wouldn't have known. Maybe they would have known that his uncle died, but they wouldn't have known that we had a deer that he just killed and that it needed to be harvested. But that instance right there showed me the love of God through people in a way that most other things don't. 
that they were willing to sacrifice of themselves in a moment. Like they came right away. It wasn't, I'll schedule it for two weeks from now. They came right away. And they met a need that we needed, that we didn't even ask for. Showing us the love of God. In Psalm 133, verses 1 through 3, it says, How good and how pleasant is it when God's people live together in unity. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down the collar of his robe, as it is the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. That's a beautiful picture of just this, this joy and this peace and this anointing that's coming down when people live together in unity. But my favorite part is the last um, sentence there. It says, for there, for there, the Lord bestows his blessing. When the people are walking in unity, there the Lord bestows his blessing. There is a blessing we will not receive until we walk together in unity with God's people. How many of you want every blessing God has to offer you? Part of it comes only by walking together in unity with God's people. I have a friend that I've walked with since I was about five years old. And her name's Tori. And she said, as we were kind of growing up and whatever, and she was in ministry, she started telling me that, you know, God wanted to use me to, like, speak to people or something. And and she kept trying to encourage me to do it. And I know that as I'm I'm hopping around like a pot up here, um, you guys probably wouldn't think or realize that I used to be fairly quiet um, years ago. I used to not want to talk to anybody ever. Because I always did stupid things, like stick my foot in my mouth. You know, for example, one time I was going to be bold, and I was going to start talking to people. I'm like, okay, I'm going to do that. Like, I'm going I'm to introduce myself to people, and I'm going to talk to them, and I'm going to pray that I don't say anything stupid. And here's this lady that comes in, and I thought she was new. And then I was like, well, she kind of looks like my Aunt Judy. And I was like, hi, Aunt Judy. And she looks at me really strange. And I'm like, I don't, think, I, don't think that, I don't think that's Aunt Judy. And I walked away. And then anyway, I'm like, okay, whatever. And we go up on worship, and there she is on the worship platform every week. Like, those are the kind of dumb things I did. I got so nervous when I talked to people that, that stupid things like that would come out of my mouth. And then, I re- and then I say things like, I will never talk to another person again, ever again. I wonder if she remembers that. I should ask her. Um, but anyway, so Tori kept speaking into my life and telling me, you need, you need to share your testimony. I, I see something in you, and you need to do that. And finally, she wrestled me down enough, and I was just so exhausted of her asking. No. Finally, I got up enough courage to stand up and give my testimony, and that was where so many things broke off of me. But if I didn't have a friend who was walking with me, that was looking through God's eyes at me, that was seeing something in me that wasn't visible to most, that was close enough in me, and then if we didn't have the kind of relationship where I trusted her enough to say, Heavens, if you are going to stick me up there, then you better pray I don't call someone my Aunt Judy. But that you see something and you're going to take a risk on me. And because of that, I started to step into the place that God had for me. As a leadership team, we talk a lot about core relationships, not just really as a leadership team. We, I actually talk to everybody about this all the time, to the youth. They probably can nod their heads and say yes all the time. Um, about core relationships and how impactful those people that are closest to you are. And, I, and I'm trying to kind of get past this lie that so many people believe, where they say, I'm going to let them in close to my life so I affect them, but they're not going to affect me. Not true. 
absolutely not going to happen. I don't care how long you've walked with God, not going to happen. The people that are closest in your life, by God's design, are going to impact you. Yes, you'll impact them, but they will impact you. And so if you don't choose that close group of friends wisely, then you're going to become more like them. And so my question is, who are the two to three people that are closest in your life? Who are they? Let them come to your mind. If you were to instantly turn into them, would you celebrate or would you be in grief? Good question, right? And if you're like, oh, I don't, I don't know that I would like that. I, I don't know that. Then you need to do a change in your life. You need to prayerfully maybe push them out of your core. It doesn't mean they can't be your friend. It doesn't mean you can't talk to them. But they shouldn't be so close that they impact you. But you need to pray, God, who is? Who is supposed to be here? Because God has those friends designed for you to make an impact in your life. And before I wrap up that point, I just want to say this. I know that there's some in here that have been hurt. You want to talk quiet? That have been hurt by friends. And you're like, I've done that. I tried that. And they hurt me. And it hurt bad. And because of that, I've kind of walled off. And I never want to feel that pain again. And I understand that. I understand that. But what you're doing is you're holding on to unforgiveness. And what that does is it doesn't do anything to them. But it does put you in a prison. It keeps you in that pot. It keeps you in a place of stunted and limited growth. It keeps you from trusting getting out of that pot so that your roots can touch other roots again and so that people can impact your life. And I'm not trying to make what you went through seem small or not significant or valuable. It was, I'm sure, because if you are feeling that way, I'm sure it was a big deal. But is it truly a big enough deal that you're willing to wither and die on the vine for? That's what you have to ask yourself. Forgiving and letting go and getting out of that pot isn't for them. It's for you. It's 100% for you. And so I just want to challenge you. God knows what you went through. He feels the pain too. He sympathizes with you, but he loves you enough to say, but I don't want to see you stay in the pot. I don't want to see that thing be your defining moment. That thing be the thing that keeps you where you are. I don't want to see that thing be the thing that disqualifies you from you taking your place. And so I want to set you free from that prison. So I pray that you'll give it to him and you'll let him walk out the process of forgiveness in your life. Point number two is experience. And experience is our way of saying our relationship with God. Intimacy with our Savior. In John 4, verses 23 through 24, it says, Yet a time is coming and is now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And the part of that scripture that stuck out to me is the Father seeks. And as I was studying that part, it implies that worshipers of that kind aren't necessarily easy to find that he has to seek them. Man, that broke my heart. That broke my heart. But at the same time, I was reminded of other places in the Bible, like where Jesus said, I earnestly desire to eat with you. That is the Father's heart to us. That is Jesus' heart to us. I earnestly desire. I'm seeking for people. This is God. He doesn't need anything, but yet he wants and desires and chooses to seek after our intimacy. 
Another thing Jesus said is that as he looked into Jerusalem, he said he longs to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wing. He wants you close to him. He wants to gather you together. He wants to have that close relationship with you. So my question is, do you long for him? Because we go through a pattern of where we long for him. We see something of him and we long for him. And then that longing for him starts a pursuit to find him. And then the more that we find him and the more that we see something in him, the more that that longing begins to increase and grow in us. But we have to begin by searching for him. There's two ways that we regularly seek to know God. And it's through worship and through prayer. Worship, I used to think, was about singing. How many guys, when you think of worship, it's like singing, like what they do up here on the platform? Oh, good. Or you're just not answering me. So back years ago, that's what I thought worship was. And since I don't sing, I was like, oh, that's awful. Like, poor everyone in heaven. They're going to have to listen for me to sing day and night, 24 hours a day, because that was my picture of what worship is. But the more I started to study, like in Revelation, worship consisted of hymns of adoration and praise of the character and the actions of God. I'm like, I can praise God. How many of you can praise God? You can say, God is good. Like, he, he did something about it. How many can thank God? How many know something of his character that you're a bit in awe of? Okay, so you can worship. Psalms 100, verses 4 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Entering his gates is coming close to him. It's drawing near to him. It's worshiping him. And so when you start to thank God, when you start to praise him for who he is, you're drawing near to him. And that makes the Father happy. And that does something in you that you need. Worship in John 4, when I looked up the definition of that word, it means to bow down. And this is my favorite definition of worship. Because when we bow down, we surrender. When we get on our knees, when we bow our heart, we're saying, God, I give it to you. I give you my will. I give you my action. I give you my heart. I give you my desires. I give you everything, Lord God, and I take what you have for me. I give you my unforgiveness, and I take up your forgiveness. I give you my insecurities and those lies of worthlessness, and I take up your identity for me. When we worship, we surrender. We give God everything. And that is the kind of worshipers that the Father seeks, those who will surrender everything. We also seek God in prayer. Now, I don't mean praying at meals, which we should do, or praying at bedtime, which we should absolutely do. I'm talking about an on-fire prayer life. Like, do you guys know what I mean by on-fire? Like, your body is on fire. There's such a desire. It's kind of like a new love. Okay, think back to when you were first in love, you just could not stand to be away from that person. That's the way Matt was with me. Like he called me all the time, he wanted to hang out all the time, just hearing my voice like made his whole month, right? He would never, he would never admit to any of that, but it's really the truth. But it's an on-fire prayer life where you can't wait to talk to God. You can't wait to hear what he has to say. You want to know how he feels. You want to know his desires. You so desperately want to be close to him. It's like talking to your best friend. There is power in prayer, power in two or three gathering together on fire for prayer. And my daughter, oldest daughter, she went to breakfast with a friend of hers. 
And then she came home and she was telling me about it. And they were talking about their discussion. And one of the things that she said is this girl named Olivia and her friend, that they used to get together in eighth grade. And they loved God so much and wanted to God, see God do such a powerful work in their community that in eighth grade they would walk the streets of Waterloo and they would pray for church unity and a revival of their generation. Okay, let me just remind you, this is eighth grade little girls that decided that two was not too small a number, that they knew enough of God, they were passionate enough of God, they believed in who he was, that they were saying, I'm going to go and I'm going to spend my time and I'm going to walk around the streets of Waterloo and I'm going to pray for this city. And as Bella was telling us this, I'm sitting there going, we are seeing church unity. We are seeing a revival in the younger generations. We are riding on the prayers of two little eighth grade girls. It blew us away. Guys, you are not as excited about that as what you should be. If two little eighth grade girls can hold on to that kind of faith to do something that we are seeing impact our city today, what about you? What can you do? And is your prayer life that on fire to where you believe God like that? In Acts 16, verses 25 through 26, it talks about the story of Paul and Silas. And they were thrown in prison after delivering a little girl from a demoniac spirit. And it says that they were whipped and beaten, put into the innermost part of the prison, and put in stocks and chains. Now, I've been to Israel. Promo for Israel. I've been to Israel, and I've seen the pit where Jesus was. And so I'm not exactly sure if that's where Paul and Silas was. But the pit where Jesus was, it was this solid stone and a hole, like, carved out in it. To where for anybody to be put in there, they probably had to be dropped. And as he was describing what this pit was, like we didn't have health standards like we have today. In prisoner, like it wasn't cleaned. So I would just let it go to your imagination, but I think you need to really feel what they were going through as much as we can. They didn't clean up the excrement. He said there was probably a foot of feces that was in the pit where Jesus was. They didn't give them bathroom breaks. There was infestations and sores and and all kinds of things that were on the prisoners that were put in there. There was no medical care. And so here are Paul and Silas sitting in something like that, chained. They can't get up. They probably have excremented on themselves. Here it is midnight after they've been there. And let's read what the Bible says they did. But at midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, I'm going to pause there. I'm thinking about what I would do in this situation. I might be a tad whiny. Like, I might be complaining. I can't get my arms free to hold my nose because it smells disgusting. I can't whack a rat that's trying to eat my toe off or something like that. Like, here they are in this place. What would you be doing in a place like this? But it says that they knew God so well, so well, that they said, even in this place, we are going to pray and sing hymns and worship our God. Because knowing him and being close to him matters more than anything else that's going on around us. But when they did, suddenly there was a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. Sometimes our intimacy with God is needed in our darkest hours, not for us. 
sometimes in our darkest hours, we need to stop and we need to remember who God is and how well we know him. We have hopefully grown our relationship with him so that we can praise and worship God so that chains can be loosed and people can be set free. You don't act like that and respond like that when you are in a place of a dungeon if you don't know God. Another story in the Bible says that Paul was beaten and stoned by people for preaching the gospel, for trying to share hope. And he got up and he thanked God for being seen worthy to be treated like that for the name of Jesus. If I was beaten and stoned and I had any energy left, I would go after them. But that's not what God said. God, that's not what Paul did. He said, I know God so well that I know that God is my defender. God is going to take care of me. God is my provider that what I need to do is I need to focus on him. And I know him so well that I know he will provide for me. So I'm going to let him work through me in a situation like that. In Matthew 18, 20, it says, for when there are two or three gathered in my name, there I am among them. Do you guys want Jesus among you? We need to gather together as two or three. And I've heard recently and kind of have seen a lot, but more recently it's come up, there's a lot of people that they've, they don't really pray or, or they don't really pray out loud. Like they don't really pray with their spouse or, you know, out loud with kids or in prayer groups or whatever, that there's a fear there. And I just want to say, like, that, it is talking to God. It is a conversation. You talk all the time. I don't care how introverted you are. There is someone that you talk to all the time because I was that person. And when Matt got home, like, I had to, all that talking had to go on him. Like, he had to receive it all because I was too afraid to give it to anyone else. So I know that you talk to people. Why not God? But we're going to do an exercise, and you're going to love me for it. Turn to the person next to you and say hi. If you don't know them, introduce yourself. And now we're going to pray for them. So close your eyes and you say out of your mouth, everyone, I'm going to be watching, say, dear God, I pray that you would bless my new friend. I pray that they would take their place. And I come against anything that's keeping them from that. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome, some of you, that was your first out loud prayer. Good job. But really, guys, it is that simple. It is that simple. That is what we need. People who can pray, not lofty words. Jesus even said to religious people, keep your lofty words. Pray in truth. Pray from your heart, and I will come and partner with you. I will come and be in the midst of you. In Ephesians 2.22, it said, and Matt talked about this last week, that in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. As we take our place, as we come together, as we grow in our intimacy with God, as we say that I'm going to get my two or three and I'm going to allow God to build us together, the Father comes and he dwells with us. His power dwells with us. All of those great awakenings and all those things that we see were people that came together and allowed God to build them into a dwelling place to where more of his manifest presence began to build. And then from there, great impact was had. So as we close out, I want to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes.
And before we get on with our busy lives, just take a moment. What is God saying to you? What of that you heard is piercing your heart? Is God revealing a place to you that he's been trying to tell you and you've been too afraid to step into? Or has he been trying to lead you into a relationship that you're afraid to say yes to and let down your walls? The Holy Spirit is saying something to you. We are two to three gathered here in his name. So God is here and he is speaking. Will you say yes to whatever he's asking of you? To whatever he's calling you into? He's a loving father. He is love. He cannot be anything else other than love to you. And his plans are always good for you. And so while for some of you it may be scary, trust that God is drawing you into something good, into something better. Dear Father God, I pray for each and every person in this house today. Lord, I pray that your word and your truth will penetrate their heart, that it would plant seeds, Lord God, and those seeds would take root and they would grow and they would flourish. And Lord God, I pray for everybody who's still in a pot. I pray that they would bust out of that pot. Lord God, that they would be bold and they would start to let their roots get planted, whether it's in this house or in the house that they're a part of. Lord God, that they will plant, get planted in the house. Their roots will flourish. They will begin to touch other roots, Lord God, and that they would have their greatest year of spiritual growth ever. And they will take their place in the body of Christ. We thank you, Jesus, that you are always calling us out, that you are always calling us higher, Lord God, that you always have more for us in our latter days than in our former days. We give you glory and honor in this house today. In Jesus' name, amen.